0: Passion to Poison, a podcast that explores life's transitions. I'm Russ Tanner, and I'm here with my co-host, Mac Wilson. Today on the podcast, we have the privilege of talking to Jonathan Morris. Jonathan is the co-founder and chief development officer at Obsesh, a sports marketplace that connects consumers and top athletes through personalized video messaging and live streaming online classes. Obsesh helps top sports talent monetize their skills and talents to build their personal brands. For more than 15 years, she led the the go-to-market strategies, talent sponsorships, and PR for some of the most iconic brands, including Beats by Dre, DTS, and Sony. Jonalyn also led the global PR and marketing strategies for THQ Wireless, which launched the first mobile games for the NFL, MLB, NHL, NBA, and WWE. She lives in Hermosa Beach with her two sons. Despite her success, There have been struggles and transitions along the way, and we're anxious to hear about how she was able to navigate through those challenges in her life. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Russ and Mac. I think the only thing that is not in my bio is 13 years ago when I made a big transition from uh, leading a digital division at an agency to go out on my own as a consultant. Russ designed my logo for Jonathan Morris PR. So
0: that's right. I feel like I had to mention
1: that (laughs) connection. Had to mention that connection.
0: Yes, that was a long time ago. I forgot about that. Yeah, that. What was that? You said that was fifteen years ago.
1: I mean, it's
0: probably fourteen years
1: ago now. Though I don't remember what I did on Thursday, let alone fourteen years ago. But
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's funny. Yeah, we're so glad to have you here, and you've you've had so many accomplishments. yeah you know, we're just anxious to hear about uh you know the path you've taken, but why don't you, why don't you take us back a little bit to the beginning and tell us about your upbringing, what was your family life like siblings because I think that helps paint a picture of you know who you are and 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 maybe why you went into this this career field
1: Sure, absolutely I think uh when you grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, there's a lot of jokes that you just Come out of the womb being a sports fan. So I was very lucky to grow up in an area where, you know, a big part of your childhood was Red Sox games on and Patriots Super Bowl parties and, you know, golf games on at the grandparents. But I grew up in Lowell, which is about 30 minutes north of Boston. And Lowell has this incredible gritty, multicultural feel to it that was a big, big mill town and had a wonderful upper middle class upbringing with parents that, you know, were very involved in the city, very involved in our childhood and really created this environment of experiences, you know, fostering our talents and kind of setting the stage that anything you wanted to do, you could do. I don't think they realized that would mean the minute I graduated from college, turning around and moving to Los Angeles. So they might go back and rethink that strategy. But I was the oldest of three. I have a younger sister and a younger brother and was, you know, really lucky, I think, when I look back at uh, whether it was playing sports or the arts that I loved. Um, they were always such big supporters. And I think when I also look back, you know, probably like a lot of kids, there was this entrepreneurial side. And I, I often giggle because it was anything from, you know, selling potholders to neighbors or Girl Scout cookies. Or, you know, as I got older and wanted to babysit, uh, Russ, you'll appreciate I had a magazine that uh, a girlfriend and I, Sarah McAdams, created. Um, And I would say we published, which I think was just my dad's secretary making photocopies and stapling it. But it was articles and ads and Spanish lessons and art designs. And so I think when when you're a kid who is artistic and entrepreneurial, it's always really fun, right? As you get older to look back and say, "Well, it's probably not surprising that I'm an entrepreneur you know now like I I was there was always like a hustle like how can I have some cash and I don't know if it was just to go to the movies or what I spend all even spend all this money on um but I do love looking back and feeling like those ideas were always fostered and supported and again like my dad going to secretary I, I can't even he probably like bought her a Dunkin Donuts coffee just just to make the copies for us who knows
0: So how about your siblings? You have two younger siblings. Did they follow a similar path to you? Are they as entrepreneurial?
1: Yeah, you know, we are very, very different. Although I giggle, growing up, I was an artist. And my sister now works professionally in the arts. So I do love to tease her, like, "Mm, I probably influenced that along the way. And she was very lucky to work for the Johnsons, the family that ran Fidelity, managing their art collection. She's previously worked at museums and now works with private collectors um, in that space. And then interestingly, I grew up with a little brother who is learning disabled. And so he still lives with my mom now back in Massachusetts. And it's, it's wild when you look back and sort of look at that experience of when you have a sibling who was different and he was always in special education. Um, you know, maybe even just things like, gosh, why does homework always seem really difficult for Eddie? Or Eddie doesn't have the typical friends that you have or or go to the typical school or school program. And now, you know, has, I've gotten older and he's an adult. He has a great job that he loves at a local grocery store. He is a big fan of the WWE. And, you know, we used to joke, my dad would make the comment that, like, Eddie kind of lives a sweet life, right? Eddie has no bills. Eddie doesn't have this drive of, like, oh, I'm not doing this in my life. We're like, oh, that guy kind of has it figured out. And maybe Eddie is actually fine, you know? (laughs) But when you see that this, his happiness with this incredibly simplistic life of, That is what life is like when you just live and you just be, and there's no need for it to ever be more than what it is. He never needs more money. He never needs a different job. He never needs, you know, people to do things differently. And now I think he loves having extended families like brothers-in-laws and nieces and nephews and loves being almost like a mayor at the local grocery store where he does have definitely my late dad's sense of humor. And I I think my, you know, my favorite thing in my day is getting a text from a childhood friend of like, oh my God, I saw your brother at the grocery store and he still remembers me. So it's wonderful to see the joy he brings people and in running into them at the store. And then for me, it, it's definitely not lost on me because my oldest son is autistic and having That experience growing up and getting that, that diagnosis, you know, probably about 10 years ago, I've had the experience to get with our son's dad and the two of us to navigate, okay, we are now going to have to become our child advocate and fight like heck for this kid and set the course for the life that we want him to have. And it's because I've had that experience growing up. With my own parents and so i definitely see that i was very lucky in having a brother who you know much more you know severe needs than than my son does who's who's very high functioning but it definitely helped navigate the mindset you need when you have a child who really just needs needs anything right doesn't even have to be autism or a learning disability
0: well i think there's a lot we can learn from you know, kids that are autistic or have other challenges, like you said, their life is more simple and they can, on one hand, they can't really help that. But on the other hand, you know, there's, there's something, something to be said about not caring so much about things, like not getting caught up in the rat race and needing more money and more this and more that. And I don't know, I think we can learn, learn from them in some way.
1: Absolutely.
0: So where did, after, you know, so you grew up, you, you, you moved to LA and you know, what, what was the next step for you career wise or school wise? I think you said you went to, to Emerson for a little while. Sure. So I, I went to Emerson college in Boston,
1: which is still to this day, very big for radio, television and film. And when I got there. I almost felt like I was in this environment of all of the creative valedictorians. Um, And I think what I also loved about Emerson, and listen, I, I hope it's this way 20 years later, that the bigger universities and college programs that I looked at, Syracuse being one of them, you always had to take a very specific amount of course criteria before you were even allowed to do anything creative. And I loved that Emerson, you could show up and on day one, act in a musical, be president of an organization, start a new organization, and, and start being super creative and involved to whatever level you wanted to from day one. And the network and the access to internships at that school was pretty amazing at that time, especially for being a smaller liberal arts college based based in Boston. I was very lucky to be a part of a pretty first of its kind internship when I came out to LA my second semester senior year at Disney's feature film production office. And I was set up with a producer, a location manager, and we really would take a film after it got the green light and bring it to life. So it was literally how the first offices were set up, the start of casting when the director was brought on, the locations. And it was a really exciting time. There was—I feel like I'm going to date myself—but um, there was Michael Bay's *The Rock* was a big movie. *Ransom* was another one. Um, there was a basketball movie called *The Sixth Man* that were in pre-production, and it was so fun having that TV background from Emerson, so I could pull footage, do video editing projects, um, help with a lot of coordination. But you know, I. I joke my claim to fame at that internship was they were casting ape actors. So these are suit actors who is going to play the George character in George of the Jungle or that whatever, whatever the main like ape character was in George of the Jungle. And so before they had brought on sort of the main talent, they were looking at these suit actors. And I remember being so proud to like go work with the director and run the video camera, clean up the room, make the like audition calls, bring the people back the next day. And this director wasn't liking who he saw, wasn't liking who he saw. And finally a gentleman, you know, became available. And I remember calling him back and literally being like, all right, guy, this is how it's going to work. This is the scene that they're doing. I'm going to get in the scene as Jane with you. We're going to edit it. Then we're going to record it. Then we're going to stop it. And it was sort of very... Not lost in me that I was like, I don't think anyone's communicating to these guys what the director wants. I don't think the director's realizing what he wants. And this gentleman came in, we nailed the scene together, and he went on to get cast in the movie. So I joke I was Jane before Jane was cast in George of the Jungle. And I think it just lit this creative fire in me that knowing I had just the skills from Emerson, the access to Come back to LA immediately and was really lucky to work for both Paramount and Warner Brothers in the media relations departments because I figured out really quickly that advertising and marketing were these really fun divisions where when you were in production, you started to go a very specific track. Like maybe you were audio, you were the camera guy, you were going to be a producer, and that's what you did. And I loved that in the PR and the marketing. You could be involved in pre-production, post-production development when series were sold internationally. And I was very, very lucky to be at Paramount during the most magical time, which was the success of the TV show, Frasier. And I think Kelsey Grammer and David Hyde Pierce and that team, there were a lot of guides from Cheers. There was a lot of Cheers alumni, men and women who came and, and were the heart of that show. and. I just really sort of saw in this wonderful way that you could be in Hollywood and treat people wonderfully and just operate and execute at such a high level that also came with love and care for the people who were who were in your world. And I think the shows that went on to capture that magic, whether I was at Warner Brothers or Paramount and Friends had a little bit of that, The Sopranos at the time, and YAR ER was another big one that just had that magic of you knew it was something special and people really gravitated and fostered that and cared for it and I think that was a a big reason I sort of fell in love in LA and stayed in LA and then after a couple of years in the studio system realized okay if I want to have a high level career I need to probably go on an agency side and get a lot more experience doing and whether it's working on shows or or working with the studios further. And then was just very lucky at the time that digital and technology were just changing the game. And I was one of the few people on the agency side who were willing to raise their hand and say, I'll work on a mobile game or a Wheel of Fortune digital initiative. Like, sign me up. I love that show. I love game shows. And I think I joked, I became the Mikey in the office who would work on any initiative that wasn't a typical TV show or DVD. Because at the time, no one wanted to work on those things. Or maybe it was like a software product that was for, you know, visual effects or, or something for driving the industry forward. And when I met CEOs and creators and asset management companies that were creating tools that were making Pixar as amazing as it is today. I was like, oh, my God. So you can work in entertainment. You don't have to work with actors. This is much less stressful. These incredible CEOs and super smart people are doing what in the industry? Amazing. Sign me up. And I think I was also very lucky that anytime there was a sports initiative that the office would would just let me work on that too. And so maybe if it was like, hey, I'm getting a mobile game or oh, I don't know, someone signed like Michael Strahan from the Giants. And I was like, what? Yes, 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 all day. And so I think that was a big lesson to me when I was younger that just this willingness to be open and have the confidence to do the projects or initiatives that no one wanted to do gave me access at a really young age, gave me visibility to very high-profile brands and to just be in places. um, That again, I felt like I'm a kid from Lowell, Massachusetts, either driving in a golf cart on a Paramount lot or walking into ESPN after getting out of an Escalade, you know, with Michael Strahan, who is probably one of the class and probably still is one of the classiest acts in sports.
0: So I've got to ask you, when when you're going through... These, these stages where you're, you're moving from here to there and Matt, you know, Mac and I, we've talked to other people where they've been able to navigate these changes without too much, maybe emotional and mental stress. How how do you handle that? Cause a lot of people going from, you know, maybe they've got an internship somewhere, but getting to that next step is just overwhelming. Like just the emotional baggage and just pressure. And it's almost like there's a wall, like, I just can't go through that wall or whatever, do you feel like you ever ran into those roadblocks or are you just kind of naturally able to just flow into whatever it is that you want to do? Or, or how, how do you, how do you do that?
1: I think it is a combination of. For me, when I look at my career over the years, I definitely was someone who let the stress of the level that I was operating at impact me. And I think sometimes it's, and there are these industries where it, it's almost treated as if something goes wrong with this talent or with this event or, or whatever it is that you're working on, or if it doesn't work out, the world is going to end. And you truly, in that moment, you feel like that. Um, and I remember going, you know, maybe it's even something as simple as going on a vacation and feeling like, am I allowed to even go on vacation and turn off work? Because what if something happened or was missed or didn't, didn't go off like I would want it to go off? The world is going to end. And then you go on vacation and you come back and you're like, Oh, God, everything was fine. <laughs> and I think that a little bit comes with age. And I think that would be for me that one thing to sort of look back at my younger self and I see the stress and the stress that people probably put on themselves or their coworkers or people who are working for them, that when you're under that stress, You're not operating at your best. You're not treating each other or treating others as you should. And I think that when you're in that stress, that's what makes it really difficult to see really great things in front of you or see the great work that you're doing or to realize, gosh, you know, maybe I shouldn't have gone back to work with my second when they were four weeks old. Like what could possibly go wrong? But in that moment, you think this brand might die if I'm not there. And then you look back and you're like, oh my God, they were fine.
0: (laughs) So so you're human. You, you went through the challenges that most people probably go through. You just, you learn to cope with it and you learn to put things into perspective then just kind of. Yeah.
1: And I also think, you know, when I look back. And something I wish I had done differently is there were definitely times when in that stress, I would choose work over maybe going on a girl's trip or a nephew's birthday or whatever it was, right? And then in that, looking back on it, you're like, everything would have been fine if you had stopped for a couple of hours or or whatever, whatever it was. And so I think making sure that you're not missing out on those things or maybe just having that self-awareness of of stopping yourself when you go to say no and say have i worked 10 days in a row is it okay if i take an after afternoon off i'm sure something will be fine or maybe i could get up earlier and get something done so that i could leave and go to xyz you know whatever it is and so i think for me i i look back and I those are things I try to incorporate now or be really conscious of now, especially being a mom where there are kids who who need you, right, or or things that have a lot more impact than just, you know, a girlfriend who's maybe mad at you for the night because you didn't come to her happy hour <laughs> or, or whatever it was.
2: So as I'm as I'm hearing you describe your career moves, it sounds like you've got an attitude of. I can do just about any role or anything. Um, and I love that because that's something that I've tried to foster in in myself. But w- where would you say that that attitude comes from? Is that just inherent in you? Or do you remember, um, you know, was there a, a teacher or family member that, that helped you foster that attitude?
1: Yeah, Mac, that is a great question. I think that fearlessness to go and at least try anything. I mean, first and foremost came from my parents who really, you know, there was always that phrase of you can do anything you want to do. And really that was it. And that whatever you want to do, you will always be supported. So I think when you feel like you have something to fall back on, you, you have that confidence. And I think a lot of it is really being clear about what are things you love and are passionate about and not feeling bad for wanting to, to do more stuff like that. You know, And I think whether it was being in my really young days and seeing, gosh, hey, if I go to this event, I get to meet people. It's fun. I'm out of the office. Like, you know, granted, hey, it's a lot of work, but I don't know, dinner was free and I don't make a lot of money. And this is like, felt like I was out in Hollywood. This is kind of cool. And you start to take these like mental notes on things that are awesome. And then you have to also remind yourself there's this other mental note of, gosh, I am so lucky to be doing this. And I think, you know, maybe whether you're in New York or LA or Vegas or Miami or like these markets where you're just in these environments or I'm in an industry where really fun and really cool things happened. But I often joked, especially when there was stress, I was like, "Mm, maybe I should have listened to my mom. I also would have been really, really happy as an art elementary school teacher. Like, and so I also have that awareness of with that drive and wanting to go out and have these big experiences, came the stress. But there was also like this your own check with yourself of, oh, I got myself here. I wanted this. Remember, girl, like you wanted to be here. You could have been a teacher, you could have been a stay-home mom, you could have been 75, you know, whatever those other things are in the world that you could have been. Um, but you chose to be here. And you chose to be here because you love it. And I think you have to remind yourself about those things, because I think when it gets really hard or you have big challenges or things aren't going the way you want them to, that those little reminders of like, all right, this is a hard day. But every other day I do really love, you know, so I think that's that's really important to have that self-awareness.
0: You used a word a few minutes ago, you said you chose this path. And, you know, I, I I do some life coaching with people and it's, I like that you use that word choose instead of decide, because choosing something means that you still have an out. Like you chose a path, you can choose another path. You're not, you're not stuck in that place that you, you went down or that path that you went down. If you decide to do something you know, the the second half of that word is to kill off, like, you know, side, it's, it's to kill. Like if you make a decision, it's like, that's it. And a lot of people, I feel like get stuck in the trap of thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to decide to go this way or that way and not realize that you don't have to decide or cut off other possibilities. You can choose to go down a path, but you can also choose to go somewhere else later. You're not stuck. And I feel like that's kind of the fact that you would even use that word instead of I decided to go down a certain path, I think it's kind of interesting that just flowed out of your mouth because I think that sounds like part of what you're able to do is you have that openness that, sure, I'm going to choose to go down here, but that doesn't mean I'm closing doors. I can choose to go somewhere else if that opportunity comes up.
1: Yeah, it's a really great point. And it's, there's a story that I remember very vividly in and sort of remind yourself you don't always choose correctly, right? Or you might not realize you have other other options initially. And I remember when I went back to work um, after my first son was born and I really struggled with coming back and the things that like drove me before, like new business and wanting to grow division and having a big team around me, they just didn't serve me. Like they just didn't feel like the things that like got me excited anymore, but I loved PR and marketing. I love helping companies. And I remember my mom saying to me, "Uh, why couldn't you just work on one company?" And so I was so quick to snap back and be like, "Ma, no one in PR can just work on one company." and then, you know, flash forward three months. I'm out on my own. I talked to the agency about transitioning to part time to just work on one company, which segue to my consulting business and Russ Tanner creating the John LaMorris PR logo. <laughs> and I so look back and I was like, thank God I heard someone who had advice for me and didn't lose that advice that when, you know, my heart was pulling at me and everything instinctually didn't feel right. I've listened to my, I mean, this is a, hey kids, listen to your parents, you know, obviously life lesson here, but I'm so glad, even though I didn't hear it when she first said it to me, that I was, when I was ready, that that advice still sat with me. And I think I didn't even have probably that awareness until after, and I was transitioned. And at the time, my husband, Vince, and I moved to New York and did this great he was on sabbatical and I just worked on one company and we went out in New York and did all this travel and I was like wow okay I guess I kind of like my mother was right oh god my mother but I mean that was like you know however many years later and so I think that's um that's something that's really important that you know for for individuals is you can you can think you're not allowed to choose and and be patient because I think when you're ready you will you will eventually choose the path that's right for you and it's okay like we don't always get it on, on the first on the first try and I think that's that's a good thing I think a lot of us need to come to that realization on our own
0: so let's shift gears for a second because uh, my wife and I right now are watching the the series, The Dropout, about Elizabeth Holmes. It's on Hulu. Have you watched mm-hmm.
1: that? No, but I've seen some of the documentaries on her.
0: Yeah. So she's, you know, if, uh, I won't spoil it for anyone that doesn't know much about her, but it's just an unbelievable story. Um, basically about how to not do things and how to really screw things up. But she's a woman in Silicon Valley, you know, tr- You know, basically trying to fund, you know, get, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to fund this blood testing company. And, you know, she gets to a point where she feels like the only way she's going to get ahead is if she dresses like Steve Jobs. She even changes her voice to sound more masculine. I mean, it's just unbelievable what she does. and. We're watching this this TV series, and I knew we were going to be talking to you. And you, you're a woman that's in this world of raising money, starting a business. But you've successfully done this, as opposed to Elizabeth Holmes, it just kind of blew things up. But it does point out that it can be a challenge if you're a woman. Uh, to be in that world. It is kind of a masculine dominated world, you know, venture capital, all that stuff. So tell us a little bit about how you've been able to, to navigate that without having to resort to changing your voice and dressing like Steve Jobs. Well,
1: thank goodness. I haven't had to do that, but I have certainly had to be open to mentors, you know, my own business partner and you know people in my in my personal world to feedback on to feedback on how to be the best business person possible or company operator or company co-founder that i can be based on my background and my experience to to help position my company for success and it it wasn't something where I was changing me inherently, but it took becoming really confident in soft skills that I had because I'm not the lead engineer. I'm not our CFO. I'm the face of our company to athletes and partners and the passion I have for when I love something. and believe in it, in the network that I've built, you know, over 20 plus years in very similar industries, that it took me a while to get the confidence that those skills were just as valuable as an MIT engineering degree or Stanford MBA. And and once I hit that stride and I became really open and I remember reading once and probably in like, like a self-help book is that a lot of times when you're taking feedback as criticism, um, that's, that was really hard. And I think I needed to make that mental shift. And sometimes I'll be at events and someone will, you know, sort of say, Hey, I had, you know, kind of this thought on what John said. And I, I literally made a joke of what am I putting out in the universe about I want to be a student of being an amazing entrepreneur? <laughs> I think that comes in unexpected and unasked for all the time once you put that out there. But I think you do, you do have to be very open to learning when you're going into a new industry. And the same would almost be if you had played one sport and it's like, hey, I was this absolutely incredible rugby player. So I'm going to go out and play football. And if you weren't open to being like, well, you know, now you kind of have to tackle. I know you didn't before or you hold the ball differently, pass the ball differently. And I think if you if you weren't open, you know, to listening to people who had come before you and did it really well, you would be doing yourself a disservice. And I think at some point you do have to get past that, you know, these stats that you read about all the time, that only 2% of women are receiving a percentage of the venture capital um, that's invested in, in startup companies each year. And you just focus on operating the best company, having a really clear understanding of what are the marks that you have to hit to get an investor to invest in your company. And have the right story, have the right team, have the right marks you want to hit on in terms of growth or customers or or revenue and get really good at those things. Um, because sometimes it's less about you and more about this business that you're growing. And listen, you can be a man, a woman, an alien, an animal, whoever. You know, I think there's such a an emphasis on who, what are those amazing company stories that solve a need or or fix a problem? And I think it's starting to become less about women. I I really believe that. And I think you're going to see more, you know, companies that are funded that have women. And it's just because they're, they're great companies. And they just happen to have, you know, maybe a female co-founder or founder.
2: That's great to hear
0: you know, having three daughters myself and growing up with three sisters and no brothers. And so I've been around women my whole life and they're, I mean, sure they can't, you know, bench press 800 pounds, but they're just as capable in every other way as anyone else. So it's just kind of funny sometimes to think that people are treated differently for those reasons. Yeah, I'm I'm glad to hear that you feel like it's, it's shifting in the industry.
1: I think so too. I I think that, I think there's also just a, a shift in general that company founders can come from a lot of different walks of life. But I think, you know, one thing I've been most excited to see, I was reading something today about Baron Davis and his bio of what he learned in just being his own agent in his career and someone who you know, you could have just said, like, you're a basketball player. You can't be a company founder or an investor or like, you know, you do layups or, or whatever it is. And I, I love this idea that, you know, what a company founder or co-founder probably looks a lot, looks, feels, um, and has experiences that were a lot different than 20 years ago, than 30, 30 years ago. And there's such incredible athlete entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs who come from very different backgrounds that are doing incredible things and, you know, helping to change the world and pave the way for others um, that just didn't all look like, you know, Steve Jobs or, or other typical founders.
2: I'm really curious, um, mostly because of failures that I had as an entrepreneur. Where I thought that I could go do something on my own and quickly realized I grew up in team sports and I really need to be in a team environment and atmosphere, talk about that transition a little bit from working within an organization to founding and now you're, um, you know, running and you are the, um, just that just that transition I moved from you know supporting a team to to being the one that that a lot of people look to for answers
1: that is a great question. And interestingly, for me and where my career path had gone for so many years when I had my consulting business, it was just me. And so I was the senior person, the junior person the the brands every person and when i started my company really for the first year of getting it off the ground it was my business partner and i bootstrapping doing a lot of the work which is what i knew right like i was a hustler i knew how to do work on my own and then as we got funding and we grew that's where the challenges for me came of like okay it's not now just me Trying to get things done, there is a formality to it of what our goals are, how we want to accomplish those goals, how you manage those people. And it was very lucky with my company now, where my business partner has been an incredibly talented operator at very big organizations, you know, from Home Depot to Best Buy and others. And in our company incredible does as our ceo does such an incredible job of setting the culture and setting the tone and kind of guiding those principles that help us as you know an organization that has leaders help young people create goals within the company and actually build things but i will say probably the biggest challenge for people today and especially over the past, you know, what, two to three years is building teams and culture in a remote environment. And I think, you know, I think what's fascinating is you could have led a team in an office for 20 years and all of a sudden now we're all, we were all finding ourselves as leaders individually in our homes, right? And so I think that has been you know, probably one of the the biggest workforce challenges that that people have ever faced. It, and we say it at our company. It is super, super challenging. And thank goodness the world is starting to open up a bit more. And so there's a little bit more travel. Or folks that are on the East Coast can get together at a WeWork space or 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 do a happy hour um, or see each other safely. And folks are vaccinated. But I think that that sort of challenge of being a solo entrepreneur to now being in a team environment and then getting those like leadership chops back and then COVID hits and you're trying to figure out how to do it. So I I commend people who have built teams during COVID because it is not easy, not easy at all.
0: So it's definitely not easy, but do you, do you see it as a a benefit at the same time? Assuming you can navigate through that, Where, where do you see remote work? A good thing, bad thing overall? Again, assuming you, you can figure it out.
1: I mean, the absolute number one benefit is access to unbelievably talented individuals who you may not have hired if. Your goal was to create an office in a specific area with only people who are based in that specific area and to see the incredibly talented team that we have based, where our product is being run out of Venn, Oregon. We have, um, you know, our athlete development and social media and coaching being run out of the East coast. We have some social media support happening out of Barcelona and I think um, if we had gone under the lens of "Hey, everyone has to move to one area and we can only be based in one place," that we might not have these amazing people who work for us today. Yeah,
0: that's a good point. You know, your your talent pool is the whole world. So, how do you how do you navigate the the work life balance? You've got two kids. You know, there's a lot going on. You know, your mom. Um, a lot of people struggle with that like how how do you figure that out and and make things make things work?
1: Yeah, I think that work-life balance is, I think there's a couple things. One, taking your years of experience to give yourself realistic deadlines. Try to the best of your ability to then stick to those deadlines and and sort of, you know, if maybe going to the gym or coaching a child's team or, or or whatever it is is a priority for you, that you make that time for yourself and things that are important to you. And then sometimes it takes like maybe getting up at six a.m. to finish a project and send an email and then be at the gym by seven, right? Or or whatever it is. But if you're someone who feels like you know, I think for me, you know, I try at least one morning a week on a weekday to get out on a beach volleyball court at seven o'clock, you know, try to play from seven to nine. And I giggle that my team, it's probably sometimes apparent that I still have my like baseball hat on. I'm sure I'm Sandy. It's probably coming through Zoom. I probably got somebody else Sandy on the call, but they will joke that the best ideas like the best clarity on things always come when I've come off of a volleyball court. Because, and listen, whether it's endorphins or I'm just so happy. And I think when I am there or, or at a gym class, right? And I used to go to the gym from maybe from five to seven or six to seven. That I always felt like it was this gift of time for me. And I do try to do it early in the morning because, and I've tried to maybe go to the gym at 12 noon and go from 12 to 1 or go back at 6 o'clock. And I feel like my brain doesn't shut off. It's almost like you have to trick your brain before it's awake enough to know, okay, I don't need to think about what I haven't done yet or what the kids need to do or, or what they're going to have for, di- you know, what someone's going to have for dinner. And remembering that you deserve to, to have the, that time for yourself. And then as your kids get older, you know, listen, I think there's a lot of different stages at parenting where, you know, they truly, they just have to be picked up at 530. And so if you have to stop at five o'clock to leave and to get them. And I think it also took sometimes being unapologetic and not hiding that, like, listen, it's been three weeks. Like, it's my turn to do carpool. Like, I I just, I have to do it at five o'clock today. And, you know, and hey, if something's due and I know I need to do that, I'll get up early and make sure I meet that deadline. But I don't try to hide it or, you know, I'll just put it on the schedule or say what it is. And I think so often you you don't want people to know what you're, you're doing. I, I remember once being on a partner call many, many years ago with a woman from General Motors who pulled over and was just like, Here's what's happening in my day. The car, the dog just threw up in the back. (laughs) And I remember thinking, my God, she's just like telling us that. And I think sometimes as humans, you almost sometimes forget these human moments happen. And I think there was something about COVID shifting that all of a sudden you saw, you'd be like, person's bedroom. Did they make their bed? What's happening? Is there like, is there a dirty laundry on that spin bike behind them? Or my favorite was someone's like son came into a Zoom call and literally like tapped their parent and went like they needed food after school. Like, because clearly they've been told not to make a peep, like when their parent was on the phone. And there was just something very human about the world showing when you're not an executive or whatever level, right? That when you're not in an office, this other life exists or this other place that you live or people's families, or again, like recording once a podcast with an or, you know, or an interview with an executive. And like, I don't think his wife realized he was like on a recorded interview. It we was like, i got the
0: lunch. Lunch just got here.
1: <laughs> like the kids are bonkers. And he was like, I'm so sorry. And we were like, people have to eat and they were wonderful you know got like this podcast they were able to stop it and and restart it and and everyone just sort of laughed i think that's just sort of the wonderful thing about the world you know sort of changing or zoom calls or all these things that that it's sort of it was that work life balance is happening because no one's perfect and no one's you know quite figured it out and you saw that people were clearly just at the gym or on their peloton or maybe still like, on their Peloton doing the call, right?
2: You're like yeah. that person's smart. It's definitely humanized everyone where you're like, okay, these are humans. We can't be corporate robots that, you know, do all the corporate speak like you have to ha- you can't hide that you're human anymore mm-hmm. when when your home life is your work life. So it's true. Cool. It's
1: so true
0: not to bring up another TV show, but I don't know if you guys have watched the show Severance. Have you heard about that or watched that?
1: I have not.
0: It It's really good and really interesting. It's basically about um, a company that implants a chip into people's heads where when they go to work at this facility, their personal life disappears. They don't remember anything about their personal life and it's just work. But then when they leave the office, they forget everything that happened during the day at the office and they're only in their personal life. And so it's like taking what we were just talking about, or what you were talking about, as far as, you know, remote and humanizing, it's like the, the extreme of that, where it's, there is nothing connecting the two worlds and it's a great show, I wasn't planning on plugging it, but it's a really good show. Um, yeah, I've noticed that, uh, I feel closer to a lot of people that I work with that I have to work with remotely. And I like seeing the dog run, th- run in the background and bark. And I mean, some people get embarrassed about it, but it happens to me also, like say, and there's nothing wrong with it. I think we've lived in this culture where like Mac was saying, everyone's kind of a robot or whatever, and we're not robots. I mean, we're people and and stuff happens all the time and we're all experiencing the same kinds of things. Uh, but we hide it and we pretend like it doesn't happen, even though everyone knows it's happening. It's just kind of this charade that, that everyone puts on. But I don't know. I liked you bringing that up that, uh, there has been a humanizing. That's you know, one of the silver linings, I think, of COVID is that there has been a humanization that's happened and that's good. I think that's good. There's also been a lot of problems. So we'll see how all this shakes out as, as the years go by here, but. I think that's good to to pay attention to.
2: So I'm really curious and super jealous about, um, a, a couple of the the things that you've got on your LinkedIn profile, uh, both the work that you're doing with, uh, Obsesh and, um, the, uh, Stadia ventures. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, each one of those and why you're you seem like you're at a point in your life where you're not going to do something that, that you're not passionate about. I don't know if that's a fair statement, but, uh, they seem like passion projects for you. Tell us a little bit about them and, um, and, uh, and why you enjoy them.
1: Yes. Gosh, that's such, such a good question. You know, for, for where I was in my career and this probably started about five years ago. I was definitely, in my PR consulting career, feeling this pull that I had a lot of contacts, the companies that I would consult with, seemed to always benefit from my contacts. And it was just because I was very generous, right? And whether that was connecting them with media, um, potential other partners. And I just saw that those efforts... We're contributing towards their success. And because I was set up as a consultant to have this incredible flexibility with two kids, I didn't always benefit financially. And that really started to get me thinking. And my kid's dad is an incredibly talented entrepreneur who had very early on success. And I remember three years ago attending. The Women's Equality Lounge. There's an event held by a very talented woman, Shelly Zalas, who is on a platform to help get more female founders and more female executives in C level positions. And I remember very specifically sitting at this event and she asked the question of, if you are not an entrepreneur today, why aren't you? And I remember sitting there and being like, oh God, because I have been telling myself the narratives that. My husband is the entrepreneur and I'm the consultant and the mom. And I was like, oh, I could probably start a company too if I tried. And that really, really hit me and resonated with me. And I thought, gosh, you know, my kids actually are old enough. We're in a place financially that if I was truly ever going to give it a go, I've got to go now. And then at the same time, I really felt this pull to somehow get back into sports. Like sports was just my favorite. I didn't know if, gosh, was it, do I go back and work for like the media team, for the Patriots? Like, have I missed my calling? Should I have done my career differently to just work for a traditional sports team? And I was really excited, you know, three, three and a half years ago when there was this talk of the XFL coming back, I was, uh, I love football. I was a huge WWE fan as a kid. I was like, oh my God, this would be my dream job running media relations for the team that they were getting off the ground in Los Angeles. And I rem- remember applying and no joke, and Russ. within probably two minutes, I received an automatic response that I was not qualified, but thank you for applying. And I remember Thing back and saying to my kid's dad, I was like, wow, wow. Like I worked with Aaron Rodgers and some of like LeBron, like best athletes in the world helped take Beats by Dre to their first, you know, investment by HTV, eventually acquisition by Apple. But I was like, what do I know? <laughs> what do I know? about building a brand two
2: minute,
1: two two minutes. Minutes. and I got an automated, automated response, right? So clearly I did, I did not hit on whatever marks they were like looking for in some incredible AI. And the irony is, you know, the XFL folded, you know, 25 minutes later or, you know, maybe seven months later, but it really sort of hit me of like, oh, wow, oh, wow. If I want to work in sports, maybe I need to start my own company. And a dear friend who I knew from my Beats days, and we had gone on and worked on some different brands together, finally got to this point, you know, sort of circling back at that CES of, you know, hey, we have this idea of a lot of these athletes who we've worked with over the years at different brands, when they weren't LeBron or Aaron, Aaron Rodgers or, you know, Lewis Hamilton from Formula One, you know, maybe they were these incredible action sports athletes or just like the athletes that now had fan bases weren't your typical athletes, but these athletes were not usually making a ton of money. Their Red Bull sponsorship was maybe giving them five hundred dollars a month. They were only making money if they were getting on podiums. There were no teams and league salaries for a lot of niche sports athletes, and and that's still the case today. And I think you know we really sort of came down to what if we created a company where athletes could somehow go directly to fans, right? Like they're starting to create these incredible social media followers, YouTube and Instagram. The algorithms change so much that maybe you're making money one day, you're not making money the next. A lot of athletes are starting to wake up and say, why can't I own my own fan relationship? Because I don't know how long this league is going to last or this team. And, you know, these you know, 20 year plus careers in public relations and marketing. Gosh, what if they, you know, went to helping our own company, right? Versus other people's companies and really help help athletes. And that's really where the idea for Obsession came up. And we started the company. We're on year three now. And over the past year, you know, we knew, you know, once we were ready to sort of get serious about bringing on investors and create a marketplace so that athletes like actually had a home where they could go to sell directly to fans. We applied for Stadia Ventures, which is a sports focused VC. It's the top one based out of St. Louis and they do an accelerator program. And so they make an investment in your company. You go into probably an eight week program. So I was in my late forties going back to school. It was like Rodney Dangerfield's movie, like back to school. And when we got into the program, I think I wept because it was just sort of this this feeling that from this day forward, someone believed in us. They believed in the idea. They believed in female founders. They believed that athletes need help too. And I knew that investment and that program was going to change our lives. And for me, you know, coming from a liberal arts college in Boston, I did not have an MBA. And so it was almost like an accelerated MBA, but getting to work on your company and have it be sports focused. And so I couldn't get up early enough. I couldn't be the first one, you know, on a Zoom call about it. And my business partner, every time we went somewhere, they were like, we've already heard from Tracy because Jonathan and Tracy, like I've already emailed everybody in our, I, I, we just sort of made this commitment that if we were going to do it, we were all in. And from that program, we got our product out of beta. We launched our marketplace very soon after. And it allowed us, because now we had a lead to go on and raise a million dollars. And they've really, really been so incredible to us and supportive and connected us with other partners. And you know, are, are helping us build into the future. And so I think anyone who is an entrepreneur and just trying to figure out, like, I just need like that little break. I just need someone to believe, or I, I, you know, need that support that I cannot recommend highly enough accelerator programs and a dear friend of mine from my public relations days who's an entrepreneur in the esports e- space, I recommended Stadia to him. He's a part of the new cohort of companies that just kicked off this spring. And so um, it was wild doing it at the time, still running a company, having two kids. But I think I loved learning And I don't think I realized, because I always was like the sound of taking a class or going back to school or an SAT gave me hives, like literally. And I couldn't get up early enough, grab my coffee, get in my cozy chair and read through lessons, do the work, do assignments, um, you know, get prepped, look at what the day was. Because I just, I loved it so much and I, I knew what a gift it was. It was not lost on me that they only take, you know, four companies out of hundreds upon hundreds that apply. And I think when you're handed something like that, we just sort of knew that it had the potential to change everything if we were willing to put in the work. And I think, you know, kind of like you guys, my business partner and I are athletes and you know, all right, give me what I'm supposed to do. What am I supposed to hit? How do I train? What are my <laughs> What's my coaching? What do I do? What's our goal? And I think we we took that athlete mindset and put it into the accelerator program and then getting the marketplace, you know, live and, and active.
0: That's a great story. And yeah, so I, I didn't know about that Stadia Ventures. So they only take a few companies then.
1: They do. They only take four um, in each cohort. part.
0: So where do you see things going with with your company at this point?
1: For Obsesh. You know, where where I see us going is creating more products that really essentially let athletes become entrepreneurs and build businesses based on those skills. So a lot of those skills and what those products are going to look like are coaching based. And so it's a way for them to have clients who they coach outside of the local areas where they are. So one-on-one coaching, um, using video to coach or to give analysis. It's one-to-many experiences or being able to coach in person. And then, you know, and listen, there's no shortage of, hey, there's an app out there that maybe lets you coach or, or do something similar. And I think where we win all day is the approach that we take in working with athletes and giving them access to our learnings when it comes to the marketing and the public relations so that these athletes have the training to be, you know, charismatic, successful coaches. They have the tools to promote their businesses and promote um, the coaching products that they are selling. And, you know, a team behind them when you're a women's pro soccer player or a WNBA star to come in and really give you the skills and the tools to build your own brand. Because I think that's what we're hearing a lot of is, I just came from my career playing basketball for Alabama. Now I'm in the WNBA. Like, it's great. There's someone, you know, for the team who does social media, but people aren't essentially teaching the athletes how to use social media to build their brand or teach them to even discover like, what is your personal brand right like h- how do i how do i even do that so we're i think for us you know cracking giving athletes a really modern platform to monetize their skills through all different ways to coach to mentor to help the next generation of athletes get better and then at the same time become their own entrepreneur have those skills As well as building their own brand, I I really think we're gonna win all day. And for us, the real opportunity is, you know, not only professional athletes, but NCAA athletes. And now that the name, image, and likeness ruling has passed, you know, I think, you know, Russ, when you were at BYU, you would have been, you know, in danger of losing your eligibility if you started a t-shirt company you know, based on your personal brand or if you were making a ton of money, you know, hosting camps every weekend. And so I think it's a, it's a really exciting time for young athletes to be able to take like the however many thousands of followers who are super passionate about them or, you know, hometowns or or family and friends who want to support but have been so worried to do anything because no one wants to you know, put an athlete in danger of their eligibility. That it is a whole new ball game, and so we're really lucky to have um, an NIL compliance partner and a company called Influencer. And so we are a really safe way for NCAA athletes who are already incredibly savvy about social media and have awesome personalities to to help others and. And be able to make money when you don't have to be like going into a hostess shift at a restaurant, you know, you can make that much money on a Saturday, getting down to the local basketball court and, you know, creating videos for your followers and helping them with, you know, give tips on the sport you love and what you're already really good at.
2: Well, and especially for the smaller or or the, the, you know, outside of basketball, baseball, football for, for a lot of those, you know, I I don't want to say secondary sports because those that are competing in them, you know, they absolutely love it and they're, they're, they're very involved in them, but you know, by the NCAA and the, and the scholarships, the limit of scholarships, I, I, mean, I worked every summer to pay for school so that I could go and not be able to earn any money in school unless I had a second job. And so it was five to six hours a day between weights, you know, getting uh, physical therapy and practice and you know, it's, it's almost a full-time job and you're just you're doing all that for the hopes of playing time, you know, obviously there's a camaraderie and everything, but I am really curious to see how this will, you know, impact and affect those that, uh, that, that do choose to use that for, or, or use the NCA experience as a, as a, as a way to monetize their, um, you know, their athletics. So it's, it'll be exciting and, and I'm grateful for platforms like yours and others that are going to help athletes do that.
1: Yeah, I think so too and especially where there are so many athletes who and this comes in in various different ways who who either have what we call like a super skill and maybe sometimes don't even realize it, right? Like you could be the best jump server in the NCAA or you know or the you know number 1 LaBear or whatever it is and in realizing that you can build a brand based on that super skill, right? But no one's really telling you how, right? Or or showing you how to do that. And then, you know, and others want to, to be like you. And a lot of times there are folks who, fans that will approach a player after a game or shoot a note in a DM of like, hey, I just got on my first club team at Rockstar or wherever. And, you know, how do I get the mechanics of a jump serve down before I go into auditions, right? Or, you know, am I going to make this club or or whatever that question is. So I think for for athletes, the ones that can kind of crack that will do really well. And then at the same time for the platforms that will win out is the convenience for the athlete. I think what we loved about Obsession and have been really proud is the technology and that being on the platform, creating videos for fans, all of it can be done from your phone. And I think that that opens up a whole new world of you can be reading, you know, what requests came in while you're on the bus, make yourself a to-do list, like, okay, cool. I need to, you know, shoot this or take care of this stuff this weekend. And giving the flexibility on the pricing and the terms and letting the athletes set the stage for what they feel comfortable with, the timeline that they know that they can deliver. The coaching product or set their schedule for when they're available to do one-on-one coaching so i think that flexibility and letting the athletes work with our platform on their own terms was really really important to us because it's almost like they need like athlete entrepreneur balance right like how how do you do both
0: it's a cool gap that you're filling in the industry it kind of reminds me of how you go through high school and no one teaches you how to, how banks work and credit cards work. It's so you come out of high school and you're like, well, if your parents didn't show you anything, you're, you're kind of lost. And it feel, it feels like that a little bit. It's like, here's these kids that, well, not kids at that point, but you know, these, these athletes in college or even professional sports that they, they've dedicated all their time to this one area. And they're amazing at that. But that they don't know how to do all these other things, and so I just think that's you're you're bridging a really important, you know, gap there that that doesn't exist or or didn't exist.
2: Yeah, it's awesome to hear.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Well, we're about out of time here. This has been a really good conversation. You you've taught us a lot. I mean, I've known you for a while, but I didn't know most of this about you. So you're you're a really fascinating person and. Thank you. Uh, yeah there's so much that i think people are going to learn by by listening to this podcast
1: well thank you so much for having me both russ and mac i always appreciate a platform that talks about sort of business and the journey and the lessons learned along the way especially when you know not everyone has been perfect and so i think if there's just any sort of small takeaways that people get from these interviews i know I often do from listening to other executives. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of passion to poison. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five star review. Also tell your friends to subscribe as well.